Hi everyone, welcome back to Invested, where we talk about wealth as being more than just money. Our partners Paul Rand, Joel Rand, and Sarah Minikari will bring in guests and industry thought leaders to chat about meaningful topics on personal finances, health and wellness, ideas for your business, tax planning, and other key issues that impact our lives and our livelihood. So thank you for joining us, and we hope you find our discussions not only practical and educational, but maybe sometimes a little thought-provoking. With that, let's get to the episode. On this episode of Invested, we're going to explore some of the legislative changes that Congress recently passed with SECURE Act 2.0. The original SECURE Act, which is a welcome acronym for Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Enhancement, was passed in 2019 with bipartisan support. Version 2.0 of the SECURE Act, which was recently signed into law, picks up where 1.0 left off and adds further revisions and enhancements to retirement plans that impact millions of Americans. Today, Sarah and I have the amazing opportunity to speak with Alice Joe, Vice President, Government Relations for Fidelity Investments. Fidelity, as I think most people know, is a leading provider of investment management, retirement planning, benefits outsourcing, and other financial products and services to more than 35 million individuals, institutions, and financial intermediaries. So keeping track of how legislative changes impact the company is no small task. Since joining Fidelity in 2017, Alice has worked to align policy outcomes with the firm's strategic objectives and has advocated on behalf of the firm's interest in Washington on a range of legislative and regulatory policies with government officials. Prior to joining Fidelity, Ms. Joe served as Vice President of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Center for Capital Markets Competitiveness, or CCMC. She also has extensive experience in the federal government, having served on the U.S. Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee as Senior Policy Advisor to Senator John McCain, and as a professional staff member to Senior Peter Fitzgerald. She also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Policy of the Employee Benefits Security Administration at the U.S. Department of Labor. And prior to her government service, Ms. Joe held senior positions in private equity firms. Ms. Joe has an MBA from Tulane University and a BBA from Baylor University. She also holds a Chartered Financial Analyst designation. So with that, let's get to our discussion with Alice Joe and talking about Secure 2.0. Hi, and welcome back to Invested. Uh, today, we are very lucky to have with us Alice Joe from Fidelity Investments and uh, a Washington insider, as we like to say, or you're from inside the Beltway. Um, how's it going, Alice? It's doing great. Thanks for having me on today. And thanks. And we were just talking a little bit before. It's uh, cherry blossom blooming time. It is. It's that time of the year. So we're starting to see some buds come out of the trees and hopefully it'll be peak um, over the weekend. And peak traffic as well, you were mentioning. <laughs> Absolutely. They go hand in hand, I'm sure. So at first, you know, just a quick intro. I mean, we talked about your bio in the in the introduction. What got you interested into sort of merging finance and Washington in the in the first place? Yeah, it's funny. So when I um, moved to Washington about 20 years ago, I was I had a, I have a finance background. I was working for a private equity firm, and sort of when you're in Washington, it's um you get pulled into all the politics and the policy that happens. And so being here at the right place at the right time, that's what got me into the policy world. Yeah, great. So we're here to talk about Secure 2.0. 
Um, and I'm sure everyone is more than familiar with Secure 1.0, but just for those that might not be, um, can you just talk about what was Secure 1.0? What is where did it come from? Why did we do that? And then why is there a Secure 2.0 and what's going on? Sure. You know, so Secure Act is a bill that passed Congress back in 2019. So it wasn't too long ago when we did that, but that was the first major uh, retirement policy reform bill that had passed Congress since um, 2006. So it's been 13 years and there needed to be some changes. But that bill, Secure 1.0, actually took three years to put together. Um, but then there's still a lot of things that were left on the cutting room floor that they wanted to do. But just from a timing perspective, Congress couldn't get through. So that's why they actually started on Secure 2.0 before they actually passed the original Secure Act. So three years later, you know, it's 2022, at the end of 2022, we finally get Secure 2.0 done. And and you had said that there was... Um a, a quite a bit of bipartisan support for for these acts, which is a bit of a unicorn finding something that has bipartisan support. So, you know, why is that? Why do why do you think that that's that's the case? Yeah, I mean, as politicized as Washington is, this is the one area that I think Republicans and Democrats, you know, agree on is you know um, helping people save for retirement, making sure they're taken care of, you know, in their older age, and so um, so that's why we actually saw this bill move you know, pretty quickly for the process. Um, and that's when we saw it become such a big bill, because if you look at how many provisions are in Secure 2.0, um, it is three times the size of the original Secure Act, which is roughly about 16 billion. And in this bill, we're seeing uh, over 92 provisions in there, totaling $53.4 billion. So there's some significant enhancements to the retirement uh, savings system in Secure 2.0. And I'm excited to talk about that. Right. I mean, and we've already gone through, we put out a couple of publications on it, but I'm, we're excited to kind of get into a little bit of the of the meat of it. So can you kind of get us into Secure 2.0 and just, you know, maybe how do we unpack that? And from a high level, what can you tell us about it and some of the details? Yeah. So I think for Secure 2.0, there's something for everybody in that bill, right? So whether you're a young worker that's saddled with some student debt or your retirement age that perhaps maybe you don't need to take money out of your retirement accounts just yet, or, you know, perhaps you're unfortunately faced with some emergency expenses um, and or need help getting started to save. So there's something for everybody in there. Um, but why don't I go ahead and just highlight, you know, a few of the really big ones that I think, you know, this audience might be interested in, um, which would include, you know, as I mentioned, if you're an older worker, you know, you may not need to take money out. So in the SECURE Act, we saw that they raised the required minimum, dis minimum distribution age from 70 and a half to 72. Thankfully. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> everybody wondering, why 70 and a half? Yes. Um, and believe it or not, it was a statutory reason for that. But uh, so they made it an even level at 72. So what they did in this bill, fortunately, is they raised it another year. So starting uh, beginning of this year in 2023, um, it goes up to 73. Um, and then, you know, they recognize that people are living a lot longer. And so you don't may not need to take it out and people are working later, too. So 10 years from now, in 2033, the required minimum distribution age will go up to 75. So we've got a, a little bit of a lead way there um, to get ready for some idea increase. I think it's important to note some clients are confused. Is it 70 and a half, 72, 73? 
Um, but important to know you're grandfathered in to the old rules. So if you're already taking RMDs, you can't all of a sudden just change to 73 or 75. <laughs> So one of the other big provisions I think is out there is what's called the student debt match. Um, so there's about $1.75 trillion of student debt that's outstanding today in the United States. So a lot of people are struggling to pay for that. And they're having to decide between, do I put money into my retirement account or do I pay off my student debt? So what Secure 2.0 does there is that they allow employers to make a matching contribution into your retirement plan if you make a payment, you as the employee make a payment into uh, towards your student loans. So it's sort of a win-win. It's a private sector um, solution to a problem that you know allows employees to feel good about, oh, I was able to pay off my loans, but not have to stress out about savings. So just to clarify, so I'm a student, I have student loan debt, I'm working for an employer that has a 401k. Um, I'm putting money towards paying down my student debt and the employer who used to require a contribution to the retirement plan to do a match, the employer can now do that contribution to the 401k, even though the employee is paying down debt instead of contributing to the plan. Is that right? That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. That's so right. the, the employer is not helping pay down the debt other than still giving them the contribution to the employee employment plan. Correct. In this yeah. instance, that is the case. So, Great. yeah. And then you had also talked about emergency savings. I did. Um, so, you know, there's there are times when, you know, your car breaks down or some, you know, catastrophe happens that you need to tap into some extra funds. One of the new creations in Secure 2.0 is this in-plan emergency savings account, um, which is essentially it allows some plan sponsors to offer uh, this account in conjunction with the uh, defined contribution plan that they're offering. Um, but these contributions where you as an employee can make contributions designated specifically for this emergency savings account. Um, although they do have to be Roth, which basically means your contribution goes in after tax, right? Um, which then when you pull it out, you don't have to worry about having to pay for, for the, the tax there. Um, there's a couple of things with this in-plan emergency savings account is that you know auto you can auto enrollment you can auto enroll uh plan participants in there up to three percent um they don't let highly compensated employees participate though because it is there is a Roth feature to that um but you know employers can uh do a match to the plan but not to the emergency savings piece of it so essentially you've got this one big defined contribution plan carve out a section of that for this emergency savings that is purely on a Roth basis. Another interesting provision that we liked was um, with the 529 rollover. If there's leftover balances in a 529 plan, can you touch on that, please? Sure. Um, so that actually wasn't in any of the original bills that came out of the committees that considered it, but it was a last. It was it was a last minute add-in to Secure 2.0. But essentially, if you have, uh, as you mentioned, Sarah, a leftover balance in a 529 plan for your son or daughter or some other beneficiary, um, you can now roll it into a Roth IRA in the name of the beneficiary. Um, you have some other options, but this is now a new option that's been added to the table. So the conditions around that is the 529 had to have been you know, in place for at least 15 years. 
and any of the contributions that you made within the last five years, that can't be rolled over until it ages um, out five years. So this is a new feature. I think this was something that um, there was a lot of bipartisan support for. So it adds flexibility to the options. Absolutely. Yeah. And to be clear, so that is the goes to a Roth of the beneficiary of the 529, not the owner of the 529. So if you're a parent and you're contributing to your child's 529, the child is the beneficiary, then that rollover would go to the child's, provided nothing changes, <laughs> would go to the child's Roth IRA. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Awesome. Um, you know, and we we do work with some 401k clients and we do presentations to 401k participants and you know and going through those and talking to them and it's funny because when you speak to the to the younger participants a lot of the time is you hear oh i'm going to save i'm going to save i'm going to save just not this year and then from the older participants you hear oh i wish i'd save more oh i wish i'd save more but one of the things that we talk about is is the catch up contributions um, so can you talk about the implication of Secure 2.0 and how that impacts catch-up contributions? Yeah, they, they did make a lot of changes with respect to catch-up contributions. Um, probably smaller on the IRA side, but let's just start with that. Yeah. Um, because right now, you know, obviously you can put $6,500 into your IRA. That's the limit. If you're age 50 and over, you can put an additional $1,000 in there for a total of 7500 So what they did in Secure 2.0 is they allowed that $1,000 catch-up contribution to be indexed for inflation. So every year, if inflation you know continues to rise, that number will change. So that's going to increase. And now that's in statute. Um, on the plan side, there are some bigger changes there for um, catch-up contributions. So starting in 2025, um, for those people who are age 60 to 63, even though you can make catch-up contributions starting at age 50, but for this special carve out, if you're 60 to 63, um, the $7,500 catch up contribution limit for those people will now increase to the greater of $10,000 or 150% of the regular catch up. So if this provision was actually in place this year in 2023, um, that would be $11,250 because you've got uh, $7,500 times $150 is $11,250. So it is going to be higher, depends on what the rate is going to be in 2025 when this goes into effect. So they did increase that. And for those in simple plans, um, you know, the catch-up contribution is $3,500. Um, and then that changes to the greater of $5,000 or 150% of the uh, regular catch-up. Wonder why it's only that that three or four year period. Why not it just have it be sixty plus? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think probably for revenue purposes, um, as I said, the bill is fifty three point four billion dollars. <laughs> every every um, every provision they put in, they had to find an offsetting match. So I, I think that's partly why they limited that to just that range. But I will trade you age 64 for another 10 days over here. <laughs> There's some wheeling and dealing going on. Oh, all I keep thinking about is how these plan sponsors are going to be able to track all this going forward. It's no longer a linear formula for everybody. It's, you know, this matrix of age, income, year you're starting the provision, year you're turning the age, et cetera. 
Yeah, I think the payroll providers and the record keepers definitely have their hands full right now. Trying to- <laughs> yes, <laughs> understatement of the century. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's you know it's what when it was first coming out, we I was thinking you know with all of the different types of retirement plans and standard IRAs and Roth IRAs and simples and SEPs and four hundred one ks and four hundred three bs and it's, that there would be much more unification and simplification and you know let's just make them all the same so everybody can understand them. Not so much. Not so much. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't do that. (laughs) I guess the retirement planning people have a strong lobby. They want to make it complicated. The tax people too. (laughs) Yes, Yes, for sure. But, you know, touch on one other thing, because, you know, you had, Sarah, you had mentioned, um, or I'd brought up the fact that, you know, we had to pay for everything in this bill. And so the way, the primary way that Congress decided to pay for this bill is to introduce two Roth components here. Um, And then one of them actually applies to catch-up contributions, which um, now they are allowing catch-up contributions to be be required for those making $145,000 or more in the previous year. So if you're an employee, you're making over 145, any catch-up contributions you do now has to be done on an after-tax basis. Mm. So, you know, if you're under the 145,000, that's okay. You can continue to uh, do tax deferred contributions there. But the problem is, you know, certain plans plans don't necessarily offer a Roth option. And so for those people who are there and are, you know, making above the 145 threshold, um, then you may not be able to make a contribution. So I think a lot of plan sponsors are going to get some pressure from their employees if that is to, add, enough. to add that future. Yeah, I would say for the most part, the indi- the the plan setup has shifting to most of the plans having that offering, but you're right. If they don't have it, then they're SOL. Right. Yeah. And I, I think just, you know, quickly, and for those that are trying to remember what's Roth, what's standard, what, you know, what, you know, so a Roth feature, whether it's IRA or whether it's 401k allows a participant or a, a contributor to put in after tax dollars. So I've already paid my income taxes on this, but then I'm going to put it into the retirement plan. But then as it grows and it grows and it grows, and when I take it out, I'm not taxed on the back end versus a traditional contribution to an IRA or a 401k. You aren't taxed when you put that contribution in. It actually reduces your taxable income by the contribution amount, but then it grows and it grows and it grows, but then your tax is ordinary income when you take that out on on the back end. So, you know, some people are wondering, well, why have there been so many of these uh, things that have been passed by Congress that have been encouraging to for Roth conversions, like a few years ago when they did the, hey, you have two years and we're going to take off the limits on Roth Roth rollovers. You know, so everyone understands when you do those conversions or when you make those, they're collecting tax dollars now. They are kicking the can down the road a little bit because they're trying to see, okay, how can we get the tax dollars in today, even though they may be forfeiting tax dollars later on? Right. Yeah. Anything else do we, uh, let's see. Um, Oh, we we had talked a little bit about, so, you know, I'm a 401k participant uh, and I leave my job and I go to another job and sometimes I look at, okay, should I do a, a rollover IRA or should I port that over to my new employer, the new 401k plan? There's some provisions that address that. Is that correct? 
Yes. Um, well, there's a few things. One is, um, so if you leave your employer and you don't really have a very big balance in there, if you have 5000 or less, uh, right now the employer can just take that money and cash you out, right? So, but by law, they have to put it into a default IRA if it's, you know, between $1,000 and 5000 But if it's under 1000 they can just send you a check. So you'll be subject to, you know, the taxes and the penalties that sort of go with that. Um, but uh, what they did in Secure 2.0 is they increased that cash out limit from 5000 to 7000 So now plan sponsors can, you know, move that money out um, if it's under $7,000. But um, sort of what you were getting at, Paul, was the fact that there is now a provision in there that uh, would allow for what we call auto portability. And that's essentially the automatic transfer of an inactive participant's account balance from their former employer that they they just left to the new employer um, that they just joined. So you're going to have see these automatic uh, portability providers that are out there that are getting all this data from their um, employers or plan sponsors. So they know that when you left when you left employment, and then they're going to search around to their entire database to see if you've joined another employer. And when they see that you're at this new company now, they'll automatically move your money over. Or if your money's in a default IRA, um, they'll move that money in the default IRA into your new employer's plan. So essentially, it just sort of keeps the money in the system, um, and it helps prevent leakage. And I think probably the most people that are positively impacted by this are those that were uh, getting cashed out, um, and then they were taking that money and they were spending. This keeps in a retirement system so that in the long run, they're going to be better served from that perspective. And then there's one other piece to this, too, is the retirement lost and found database that is going to be created by the Department of Labor um, and maintained. So, you know, if you have a low balance account or you perhaps left your employer and left your 401k money um, sitting on the table and 15 years later, you remember, oh, my gosh, I think I had a balance there. Um, now you have somewhere to go to figure out, oh, wait, where is it now? Because your employer could have merged. They could have shut down. Right. Uh, the Department of Labor will know where that money is. So, um, so I, would, I would encourage people once this is up and set up, if you think you have a balance, go to the Department of Labor's lost and found database. I think that's great because oftentimes people move, right? So you might move from place to place. They're sending an annual statement, but to an address perhaps that's still dated. Exactly. Alice, what are some of the provisions that are focused on small business owners? Yeah, there's quite a few there, um, which is a good thing. So, you know, in the Secure Act, we saw um, startup credits for small business owners uh, being set up. So, in Secure 2.0, they're enhancing that uh, startup credit. So, right now, well, under current law, before Secure 2.0, if you're an employer with 100 employees or less, you can uh, get a startup credit equal to 50% of your startup costs. And you can take that over three years. So in Secure 2.0, they enhance that by giving an extra uh, bump up for those employers with 50 employees or less. Um, they'll, get a, they'll get to take a credit of uh, up to 100% of a startup cost. So they pretty much double it for the smaller businesses out there and encourage them to um, start, up, start up a plan. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And there's also um, there's also a new provision in there that creates what we call these starter 401k plans. And these are really for employers that don't already have an existing retirement plan for their employees. 
And the, the biggest benefit of these starter 401k plans is the fact that you know, you're not subject to the non-discrimination testing or the top-heavy testing, which can be pretty complicated for um, for an individual or small business owner to do. So now you, you can avoid that. But there are some limitations um, with the starter 401k plans, such as you know the, the maximum contribution uh, someone can make is $6,000, which is just right below what you can contribute to an IRA. I don't know if that was intended or not, um, <laughs> but... But, you know, the other thing is they are mandating the um, auto enrollment. So all your employees, you know, whether it's two or 20, they all have to be auto enrolled into this plan um, unless they opt out. Um, but then but the one thing about that is that employers aren't allowed to make a match. So there won't be a, an, a lot of extra cost to the small business owner that does um, decide to implement the starter 401k plan. Uh, and then finally. No, I was going to say that's great because you know we have a lot of small businesses that often do want it, but when you go, sometimes when you go through the cost analysis of doing setting up the plan and and the requirements that are associated with it, they they kind of glaze over and postpone it, even right. though they want to do it. Yeah, yeah. And just to yeah. talk about auto enrollment for a second, so I, you know, for anybody that's listening that may not know exactly what that is, it's a uh, by default an employee will become enrolled in that employer's retirement plan. They don't have to do anything; they just are automatically enrolled. Now they can usually opt out of that plan, but the a lot of the new plans that are being set up have that auto enrollment mean, hey, you join this company, you're going to be eventually automatically enrolled in the retirement plan unless you opt out. Yeah. And that's actually a new provision in Secure 2.0 where it is required for all new plans created. Um, you do have to implement that auto enrollment feature in there. So all the existing plans that are established, you know, already you're grandfathered in, you don't have to do that. But a lot of plans do. And what we've seen is that you know, when you do auto enrollment, the participation rate among employees skyrockets um, yeah. up to around 80, 85%. Something Are there like any um, nuances to, with the auto enrollment, what it defaults to for a contribution amount? Um, I don't think that there was anything specified in Secure 2.0, yeah. but there is, you know, the qualified default investment uh, regs that the Department of Labor put out. So that defines what you can put it into. But what they don't want you to do is just put it into a money market fund. Right. Although, you know, they're doing okay now, but you know, yeah. in the previous <laughs> years, you're barely making anything. So they want it yeah. into a diversified type um, portfolio where people are earning something. Um, okay, right. And then I, I, I'm sorry, I may have cut you off. And I, I think you were going to talk about multi-employer plans. Yes, the other the other um, thing for small business owners right now is the fact that um, if you're if you are in a um, sorry, so the other thing for small business owners right now is that they have um, created these things called multiple employer plans and pooled employer plans. This was actually a creation from the Secure Act uh, that would allow small business owners, uh, small employers, to band together. Uh, to form their own single plan and just enjoy economies of scale. Um, so what they did in Secure 2.0 is they are now allowing MEPS, is, as we call it, the multi-employer plans, for the, in the 403B space. Because in the Secure Act, it was only for the 401k space. So mm. if you're you know, in a not-for-profit organization um, or in the public school system, you can actually now form your own MEP. Great. 
Effectivement. So we talked about, you know, additional contribution uh, capabilities. Now let's talk about some distribution, um, distribution nuances, if you will. Um, what are some ways that if, a, if an individual needs to take an early withdrawal, um, but don't want to be penalized, how they can accomplish that? Yeah, so um, Congress really took a close look at this um, in this go around because they knew that there was a lot of scenarios where people are disadvantaged and they needed some extra help and they would need to tap into their retirement funds, um, which is why they created um, a $1,000 penalty-free um, emergency withdrawal uh, for anybody that has a retirement plan. Um, so you can take that $1,000 out uh, once every three years, unless during that three-year period, you put some of that money back, uh, where the maximum you can have out at any one time within a three-year period is $1,000. So that's the first uh, relief that they gave there. Another one is for um, people you know, who unfortunately um, experience disasters in their area. So for example, hurricanes or wildfires or floods, you know, in the past, you know, Congress would have to pass relief um, for these people before they can tap into the retirement funds and not have to pay that 10% early withdrawal penalty. So by putting the provision Secure 2.0, they automatically, when a federal disaster is declared, then they automatically are eligible for this type of relief uh, with respect to disasters. Um, a couple of other scenarios where they can take out money that's penalty-free is um, if you're a victim of domestic abuse, um, you can take up to, to $10,000 penalty-free um, to recover from that. And then also cases of, unfortunately, terminal illness. Um, if you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness that's been certified by a physician, you too can also um, take some uh, withdrawals out without any kind of penalties. And I think there's a few things for firefighters and uh, uh, public safety officers as well, but, but they were definitely looking at different ways to, to make retirement accounts more accessible to those in need. Those provisions have to be written into the plan or will the plan providers just implement that across the board? Yes, yeah, so those are those are options. Um, but I think a lot of plan providers, plans, sorry, a lot of plan sponsors will look to add add some of those because there's, you know, everybody is always facing different situations. Sure. Um when we talked about um, some of the provisions that are immediately effective, we also talked a little bit about some of those things that aren't coming into play for a few years. Can you talk about what are some of the next steps for Secure 2.0 and what are the, some of the things that we can expect? Yeah, so, um, you know, obviously we only talked about a handful of provisions here and there's, you know, over, as I mentioned earlier, there's over 92 provisions so what's happening right now is that, you know, they're going through in Congress, they're going through the bill, even though they've already passed it, to figure out, oh, wait, we've got to cross the T here and dot the I there, put the comma here, which or we inadvertently deleted um, a, a paragraph which should have stayed in. So that completely changes up the law. So they are put, pulling together what they call technical corrections. Um, and I will say one of them is um, a pretty big one where if the law stays the same and the treasurer, the IRS don't issue guidance to fix this, uh, catch-up contributions may actually not be available starting in 2024. 
That was an inadvertent mm. error that was done in the bill. Um, Congress is aware of big, it. Big error. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they passed the Treasury and IRS. They're working on um, getting some guidance out there that would allow for the continuation of that. And then, you know, as soon as Congress can, you know, pull together a bill and then fix that and through technical corrections, that's going to happen. So that's one thing that's going on right now. And then, you know, as I mentioned, you know, implementing a lot of these provisions for, you know, payroll providers, service providers, broker dealers, others, advisors, um, we're just pouring through these rules to figure out what kind of guidance we need, uh, figure out what kind of regulations, waiting for the federal agencies to issue guidance on a number of things um, and getting that set up. So those are sort of the next steps that are happening here. And, you know, the key is really to get, you know, the Department of Labor, Treasury, the IRS to issue a lot of these guidance and regulations, because otherwise a lot of these provisions can't be implemented until we know exactly how they expect us to handle those things. So um, still a long ways to go here, um, which is why if you look at the bill overall, a lot of the provisions were pushed out until the beginning of 2024. That would give essentially, you know, 12 to 13 month uh, runway there. And then a number of others are implemented in 2025 and then beyond. Well, Alice, I, thank you. I mean, I know we could keep going and go on to, I mean, you've done a yeoman's job of helping us with digest the 92 provisions <laughs> and, and the, I don't know how many pages of the document is. It's 350-ish pages of, uh, I don't know if you actually enjoy reading that or if that's your... <laughs> <laughs> your pastime and how you get to sleep at night, but we really appreciate you taking the time to to help us go through some of these these key points. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Alice. Thanks. So that's our episode for today. Thank you for listening. If you found this topic interesting or useful, please let us know. Or if there are other topics you'd like us to address, let us know that too. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for joining us and thanks for being invested. The RAND Group is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. The RAND Group and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for the statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. The RAND Group and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the author and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates.